0: Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show, again with Nazir Afzal, one of the best known legal voices in the UK. Last time on the talk show, we spoke to Nazir about his time growing up in Birmingham and how he got into the law and became one of the key prosecutors of what he regards as gender terrorism, for example, forced marriage and coercive control. He tells many of those stories in his brilliant new book, The Prosecutor. Now, Nazir was also former Chief Crown Prosecutor for North West England. In that role, he reopened the case into allegations of grooming by gangs of men of mainly Pakistani Muslim heritage in Rochdale. We're going to talk about that case in some detail, and I'm sure that some people will find details in this case upsetting. We're also going to talk about the time he ended up on an Al-Qaeda hit list. The two things are, believe it or not, related one way or another. Nazir, welcome back. Great to have you with us again. Hello, Adrian. Now, Nazir, let's talk about the Rochdale case, because that, I think, is the most high-profile case that you have been involved with, the so-called grooming gangs, men of mainly Pakistani Muslim heritage, grooming, abusing young girls, mostly young white girls, and a case which in a sense, you almost stumbled across mm. when you
1: became the chief crown
0: prosecutor in Northwest England.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was I was in London. I was coming to the end of my term in London as a director. I was aware of the Times newspaper carrying out of their the odd story here and there about street grooming. Uh, it wasn't getting any traction. They were, you know, li- literally banging their head against a brick wall. I suddenly become Chief Prosecutor for what was now the, then the new Northwest region, uh, based in Manchester, but the whole of Northwest of the country. And one of the very first things I did in 2011 was to ask my teams, do we have anything like that? Do we have anything like this sort of street grooming model that, that Times have been talking about? And they come forward with what we what you now know to be the Rochdale, so-called roster grooming gang uh, case. And they Make it abundantly clear to me this is what happened. So, if I can go back a little bit, in 2008, uh, a young girl, 15, 16 years old at the time, goes into a, a takeaway restaurant in in North Manchester, and uh, starts smashing it up. Police are called. She uh, ends up being um, arrested at the police station. She discloses that she was doing that because the two of the men in that particular place had been responsible for sexual assaults on her. Uh, the officers. Uh, then decide to carry out uh, an investigation, it has to be said, and historically it's been proven to be a very poor investigation, uh, at the end of which um, they then approach two prosecutors, which they're required to do by um, a protocol. And the two prosecutors came to the same view as they did, namely that this girl would not be believed by a jury because she had um, chaotic and troubled background, uh, potentially involved in low-level criminality, etc. They were virtually ignoring the fact that she had been sexually abused because that was the landscape at the time. If back then there was still the terminology child prostitution, for example, was still on the statute books. Uh, the perception that victims, how it doesn't matter how old they were, could somehow make a choice about their way of life, blaming them. In effect, for being abused, uh, was commonplace. So, organisations from from whether in social services, children's services, or, or any other, were were to put it bluntly, turning a blind eye to the abuse of, of young women and girls, and for that matter, some boys uh, in all over the country, and not just in Rottsdale. But once they brought this, once they brought this to me, we had a problem. The problem was, uh, in order for me, if I was going to restart these proceedings, I would have to. Uh, do what I'd never done before, which is to overturn decisions taken by other prosecutors. That's such a very rare thing. It can only be done now if you know for sure that the decision was wrong. Uh, And uh, it was given that I was able to watch the video disclosures, it was obvious to me that it was wrong. And so for the first time in my career, which is 20 years on by that time, I reversed the decision that had been taken by others and brought the prosecution.
0: But that was not an easy thing to do, was it? There was a a very high threshold was set, a test called a test of Wensbury reasonableness. Yes. And basically, you had to show that no reasonable authority could reasonably have come to the decision to not prosecute. And you're the new guy in the Crown Prosecution Service in the northwest of England and effectively you are saying that your predecessors got it catastrophically wrong because unless it could be proved that they had done it that that it had yeah. been done catastrophically badly you could
1: not reopen the case that's exactly it that's exactly if it could have been if by some measure, it could have been seen as being reasonable in the circumstances. It couldn't have been open. But it was, you know, I never look back and think, oh, my God, what's, you know, I wasn't sitting there thinking this is really risky and how brave of me. I was thinking, actually, let's do the right thing here. Uh, and then when somebody said to me, hang on a minute, how do we deal with the jury now? Because the, the, all the defense have to say to the jury is members of the jury, uh, you don't believe her what she has to say because the prosecutors didn't do either. You know, and uh, how did we get over that? Well, my response was very straightforward, and that was: we tell the jury we got it wrong as an institution, as an organization, because it wasn't her; it was our fault. And then we can move on. Uh, the jury, jury, obviously, that's again, that was novel territory, but not, the, nonetheless, it was the most sensible territory. And once we'd done that, the next thing to do was to find all the other victims. There were forty-seven victims in total of this particular group of men and at that time and we made a judgment with a group of us that the six people six of the victims were strong enough to go through the court process and then the next thing was what support they needed think about it adrian they've never trusted an adult in their lives never why would they suddenly trust a prosecutor or a police officer or anybody on their part so we had to build trust and we put things in place there was no checklist for me to follow you know we just simply did what was what we felt was the right thing in relation to these victims and build the strongest case but then then the politics took over because because of the men being from british well all but one from british pakistani backgrounds the far right particularly the british national party at that time uh, decided to exploit the case and so they were anybody who's seen the bbc film three girls will know this is the case i'm talking about Um, The actor who played me in that is much more handsome than I am. But nonetheless, we had demonstrations outside of court every day by these, in effect, bullies and thugs, uh, and they were determined to make their voice heard. We had a defense team or defense teams whose strategy was the same as theirs. Namely, they wanted the case to stop in some way, a mistrial, disrupted trial, however it may be. They did not want the case to be deliberated by a jury. The only people committed to giving these young victims justice was me my prosecution team and the brilliant police team that we now had and by may 2012 the men were convicted then my god the world did open up i mean did it open up um you know suddenly it was front page of every newspaper there were uh, television channels every television channel was outside of my door or outside the office or whatever it can the prime minister at that time somebody you may have all forgotten david cameron uh rings me up and asks me to explain what's going on i mentioned in parliament by the attorney general etc etc but simply because i've done well, one case now i'm the expert apparently and you know, it was an enormous responsibility but i had to take that on i had to deal with people's concerns and Uh, issues and uh, try to try to understand get them to understand what was going on the ethnicity of the men as I've always said is an issue you know what what drives them to do what they do or did uh, is an issue what was the biggest issue however was the availability and vulnerability of these young victims and the fact that nobody absolutely nobody charged with safeguarding them had looked after them they'd all been ignored and all been left behind
0: and these young women were women in care,
1: young girls in care. Not all of them. Well, one, you know, one or two of them were living with uh, in sort of dysfunctional families, but you know, not all of them were in care. This is this, this is the stuff that we were literally was so eye opening, Adrian. You know, the, for example, at that time, I did not know this, but if you were uh, in um, put into care in some, say Essex, the likelihood is you would end up being foster cared or supported by a home in the northwest of England, because it's cheaper. So they'd take them 200 miles up the road, leaving them all on their own in places like that. And then the police turned around to me and said, "Nasir, we don't even know where all these care homes are. I said, why is that? Confidentiality. Do you know who knew where the care homes were? The perpetrators. They were sat outside them, waiting to pick up the girls as they left. The care home owners themselves, the managers, knew what was going to happen, and they would just let them leave the house and go straight into a car and then go off and be abused by groups of men. It was an extraordinary situation, simply because these girls were completely and utterly ignored. Nobody was listening to their concerns. Nobody was treating them as victims. Everybody was blaming them for their abuse, and that is scandalous now as it always has been.
0: Yeah, you tell this story of, uh, and clearly there were people in the Crown Prosecution Service in the northwest of England who you give credit to, who did want to bring prosecutions, and you pay tribute to the police officers who did such great work bringing the case and uh, the liaison support officers and so on. But in the early stages of that case, echoing, I suppose, the case of Benaz Mahmud that we talked about in the previous episode, where you talk about a police officer yawning as a young woman tells this terrible testimony of abuse and the sense that it is the the victims who have their backgrounds checked out it's the victims who are investigated rather than the perpetrators
1: really really quite shocking stuff all of that adrian absolutely they we 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 were making these cases more difficult than they were simply because uh our focus or well, not our but generally the focus was these girls somehow brought this upon themselves and why were these upstanding men who work in in whatever businesses they work in uh be treated like this after all you know child prostitution still on the statute books you know they were paying for sex in whatever way they call it no it wasn't sex it was rape and we've got to remember that over and over again but it was uh, never mind being immensely challenging it was also the personal cost um you know i the, the, the British National Party and the far right at that time made it abundantly clear that all minorities are the same. And they wanted to paint the picture of these men uh, being reflective of the whole community when we know that 99.9% of the communities are law abiding. But somehow we were all the same. And then they discovered, because you know they couldn't get away from it, that I was the one that reversed the decision, brought the prosecution. Uh-oh, that completely damaged their narrative. And so the next thing they did was to come for me. in probably... The first example of fake news that I'm aware of, this is 2012, they put out stuff on Facebook and other networks saying somehow that I was, even though I'd never lived in Manchester until 2011, I was somehow responsible for not bringing the earlier prosecution. And there, unfortunately, many of their ignorant followers came for me. I mean, uh, when I say came for me, I'd spent, by that time, I'd spent 20 odd years dealing with the most serious organized crime in this country. Horrible people. But I'd never, ever talked about it at home. I would come through the door, Adrian, and that was my safe haven. Suddenly, I had a far right demonstration outside of my door. I had the police officer placed outside my door for a fortnight. I had to tell my children, oh, the prime minister's got a police officer outside his door to somehow, I don't know, reassure them and make them feel safer. Uh, The police put a panic alarm in my house. I had to teach my children how to use a panic alarm. They could only go to school for Best part of three months in a cab, because that was the only way, safe way of being able to do that. And I got seventeen thousand emails in a matter of days calling for me to be sacked and deported. I got every decision right in this case, yet I was now being completely and utterly destroyed by these people, or at least they attempted to. And were it not for the strong support I had at work, uh, the colleagues that are. Literally, often they'd be running down the corridor saying, don't show him the letter, you know, Um, that kind of stuff. Uh, they, They were making it easy for me to be able to look after my family. You know, they were determined, the people who were determined to destroy me. And yet I had thankfully people around me who kept me sane and supported me when, again, I go back to what I said, I was the one that got every decision right.
0: And in fairness, in that case, because you were aware of that political sensitivity, the way that people on the far right were trying to exploit the case, you did proactively, as you have done in many other cases in your career, sought to reach out to those people. You contacted the BNP. You contacted... Tommy mm. Robinson mm. Stephen Yaxley Lennon, his real name, the founder of the English Defense League, who was also making capital from this, so you did try and engage with the people who yeah. saw this in, who saw this
1: issue in racial or religious terms absolutely, absolutely. I go back to what I said about listening I, you know, in the last episode I, 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 leaders must listen, and so it doesn 't matter who who they are, so I, I rang the BMP and they They didn't want to talk to me because of who I was. Uh, Stephen Yaskin-Lennon, if you go on YouTube, there's some lovely statements about me on his um, YouTube channels. You know, I don't care. The point is that I wanted to hear what their concerns were and deal with them on in in an evidence base, not just on anecdote or views. I remember, I remember, with the British National Party, almost immediately after I dealt with Watsdale, I prosecuted successfully a, a British National Party member, um, white British National Party member, who has sexually abused uh, young children in another part of the country. And uh, well, I, I said, you know, I said publicly, uh, you know, hang on a minute, this guy is from the BNP. Well, you know, why are you not? Term- you know challenging him or pointing out that you know he's also an offender, and their response was, "We've cancelled his membership. you know I can't cancel the membership of the of the Rothsdale grooming gang." Or any other brown person that commits crime or any other person minority, but somehow they can just simply wash their hands of this person uh, and you know, not tar the whole community. Not every white person by some distance is a criminal you know eighty five percent of offenders sex offenders are british white men, yeah but ninety nine percent of British white men would never touch a woman in that way, so you know yet somehow these nine Rodale criminals were somehow reflective of the majority of our community it wasn't but yes i reach out for them but i also have them to deal with the communities themselves you can probably imagine the communities of muslim asian british pakistani communities were in uh, shock uh as what they had seen and what they'd heard and they were uh, and again i took it upon myself it's not enough to i don't know send somebody else to uh, into the lion's den or to do these difficult jobs i remember going to an event at a town hall and there was hundreds of people in the room and they were all aghast really at what they had to deal with. And, uh, and I said to them, look, it beggars belief to me. I am shocked still that a 59-year-old Asian man could walk around, drive around all day and every day with a 14-year-old white girl in the back of his car and nobody noticed, you know? And then somebody stands up in the room and says, hang on, hang on. Do you want us to be whistleblowers and, and snitches and grasses? I said, no. I want you to be a nation of good neighbors. You look after your children and you hope that your neighbors will look after their children and also your children. You know, Uh, that's what I'm after. Not that you snitch. You need to ensure that you protect each other. And I I think I was able to deal with that group of people. But the point is that I was more than prepared to go into battle, if that's the right word, with people who did not agree with me. And uh, and it's challenging. It was, you know, there were places, quite frankly, that it was quite scary going into. Cause I didn't know how people would res- respond. But the vast majority of people from British-Pakistani or South Asian or Muslim backgrounds were extraordinarily grateful and receptive to what we had done. They, these people were also, by the way, harming British-Pakistani girls. You know, the, I prosecuted the ringleader of the Rostro Grooming Gang immediately afterwards for his abuse of a girl from of the same ethnicity as him. They're just These girls were even less likely to come forward because of issues of honour and shame. So, you know, they don't care what the background of the victim is. All they want is to be able to do what they want. And that, I think, is why it's not, not the race or ethnicity that's an issue. It's what we as a society have decided to decide. You know, wh- wh- why is somebody more important than somebody else? Wh- which victim is more important than another victim? No, my personal view, and always has been, is that we treat everybody without fear and without favour.
0: At the same time, you said in this conversation that the ethnicity of the men was relevant. And in the previous podcast, Mm -hmm. we talked about how, within certain communities anyway, attitudes to women are less well-developed, and I speak in broad generalities here, than they are in some other communities. So Mm -hmm. to what extent was the ethnicity of the perpetrators in Rochdale significant and why?
1: OK, well, to, to, I mean, to answer your question, we need to do something we haven't done. I I gave evidence in Parliament in 2012 and said, look, can we have some research, please? I'm not going to base my uh, findings on my thinking or my knowledge or even the odd cases I've dealt with. And here we are now, eight, eight years later, and we still haven't had any decent research. But from what I know, uh, think, about, think about it. These young girls... Um, they're, they're li- literally on the streets day in, day out. Uh, they're gonna, in the evenings, they, where they are going to go? They're going ni- to migrate towards the nighttime economy where they will find warmth, food, transport, mind-numbing substances, all of which will be in the takeaways, the mini cabs, et cetera. And unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to see it, disproportionately British Asian, British Pakistani men are engaged in those environments. And amongst them, predators are hiding. That's one element. Number two, culturally, you've just highlighted it very well. Uh, there are some men within our community, as there are many others, but certainly I, I'm aware of it within the British Pakistani or British Asian, South Asian community, who think of women as being some lesser individual. You know, they would pass them around, as they did with these victims, without a thought as to the fact that they themselves were human beings. You know, they wouldn't do it to their own daughter, one would hope. Uh, but they, they would say, this girl is not our daughter, we can do what she likes. Nobody cares about her. You know, so there's an element of of that um, culture that comes into it. You know, the youngest perpetrator in the Rossdale gang was 18 years old when I prosecuted him. Part of our case was that at the age of 16, he was given a girl for his birthday. You know, that is literally how they t- thought of these victims as chattels, as pieces of property, as inhuman almost. And so all of that has to a part to play. But I go back to my point, Adrian. Where is the research? Can we have some research? Can we then move on and deal with it that way, uh, rather than simply do it based on anecdote? Mm. Uh, it's worth noting as well, and I suppose there is a link
0: here in that you tangled with extremists in that case and challenged the BMP, challenged Stephen Yaxley-Lennon. In another point in your career, you were told that you were on an Al Qaeda. Hit list because mm. I suppose showing your desire to stand up for victims, whoever they are and wherever they are, you were determined that a group of Islamist extremists who taken to the streets of this country and shouted abusive slogans should feel the full weight of the law, whereas perhaps traditionally they might have been charged with a lesser offence. Just talk us through that, because you, again, you were, you were keen to, I think, to find out what the limits of the law might be in order to
1: secure justice. Absolutely right. But the law is a tool. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you, Adrian, I don't really like a lot of lawyers. And lawyers are often fixated on process. We have to do this, then we do this, then we do that. And, you know, I've never thought of it that way. I thought of law as a tool for good. I know sometimes it's too bad, but certainly something you should be able to use appropriately uh, in such a way that you deliver justice. And in that scenario, we had the Danish cartoon protests in uh, the mid 2000s. A group of men were walking around with placards saying behead this and behead that. Uh, It wasn't enough for me to prosecute them just for the straightforward public order matter uh, for which they would have got a slap on the wrist. Which would have been the traditional response. Yeah, which is traditional, absolutely. If you're calling for somebody to be beheaded on our streets, I'm afraid you're soliciting murder. Because we, now, we know more recently, haven't we, when we have citizens beheaded in Iraq and Syria, for example, um, that you don't just do that lightly. So we, just, we charged them with soliciting murder. They, some of them were sent to prison for six or seven years. It was uh, quite uh, necessary. You don't now anymore see placards on the street calling for beheading, by the way. So people have learned their lesson. The second thing is, uh, as you said, I get a visit from special branch saying, uh, "Mr. Rafter, we're here to tell you you're on a, um, an Al Qaeda verified Al Qaeda death list." Um, to which I respond, "Well, um, so what? What happens now?" And they said, oh, "No, we're just here to tell you you're on an Al Qaeda death list." I said, "That's very kind, thank you." And I, all I'm able to do, Adrian, is go home and hug my children a little bit closer. You know, if you know what what we will be, uh, you know, 15 years have gone on now. I'm still here, uh, and I can't do anything about it. But, you know, as I said earlier on, there's a personal cost. If I'm getting it from the far right and I'm getting it from Islamist extremists, maybe I'm in the right place, you know. Uh, And they're often two sides of the same coin anyway. You know, I, I, I think that you've got to do the right thing, always do the right thing and justify it and stand up and support it and not be you know, hiding behind the law or hiding behind a bureaucracy or institution. I've never felt that way. You know, I sometimes get criticized and they say, you're always on the telly. Well, that's because maybe, maybe nobody else wants to, you know, maybe they want to, or they'll do it in such a way that they don't use, they use such a legalistic language that it actually flies over your head. You know, I prefer to... I don't, I don't like legalistic language. I prefer to talk to you in language that I would talk to my family or to others about. And that is how people get to understand how our system works.
0: One final area I want to talk to you about is the, the riots that erupted after Mark Duggan was killed in Tottenham, shot dead by a police officer. And in the immediate aftermath of that killing there were some pretty nasty riots not just in london but in birmingham in manchester in other parts of the country and the police and property shops were looted the police were clearly seen in some of those riots as as legitimate targets by the rioters and again you pushed the law i think it's fair to say to its limit so that people would not treated In the way that they may ordinarily or traditionally have been, you were the architect of tough,
1: swift justice against the perpetrators. Again, you know, if you've got people with hindsight, people forget, don't they, very easily? You know, nine years ago when those riots broke out, I was—I lived in. manchester at the time and anybody that was involved i oh, just lived in an area and you've got helicopters overhead and every shop is being attacked it's you know they're not doing it for political reasons they're, they're running out of curries with televisions for crying out loud you know um you know that to my mind it was it but it was scary beyond scary wasn't it I, I, any of us who were involved in that and sometimes the response has to be immediate and by immediate i mean not just a Policing response, police have to make sure that they deal with these things fairly, but what was happening is was the cells were filling up like nobody's business with people they were arresting, but our courts working to their normal timetable, we would not have got around to dealing with these people for another day or two or longer, and that meant that the you know people who were in the cells were not being given a fair trial or were even being treated with the respect they deserved. So what we decided to do, and it wasn't just me, we decided to open up night courts uh, pretty much for the first time in in UK history, which meant that police could bring the individuals to court, they'd be dealt with at midnight, whatever time it was, and uh, they could be sentenced and sent home uh, or go to prison, whatever, whatever the outcome would be, uh, with relative speed. Uh, fairly, of course, at the end of the day, they still have their legal advice, etc. Uh, and that meant that we could deal with the, the, the phenomenon of of the prisons being full. People were being kept in prison vans, in police vans. You know, that's not a fair way to deal with it. And also, the sentencing was important. So we had, again, there was a bit of law that people didn't weren't using called community impact statements, which means people know about victim impact statements. So if you're a victim of crime, Adrian, well, uh, When the person is being sentenced you can write in a document how you feel about what happened to you so it struck me this bit of law was quite useful here so why don't we get i said to my teams why do we get community impact statements so we go to the people of manchester or salford and say to the council leaders and whoever else how do you feel about what happened today and almost without fail all of them said the most terrifying thing has happened for for years and years and years and we were able then to put that before the judges so that when the judges were sentencing the individual for smashing a window they weren't just they weren't just sentencing him for smashing the window the context is important they were smashing the window at a time when everybody was scared to death and therefore the sentences were upped so instead of getting a few months in jail, perhaps, or a few weeks, you got a few months, etc. Uh, and that, you know, people were critical at the time. I remember, a lot, they probably still are now, really critical. Oh, my God, this sentence should fit the crime. It did fit the crime. That's the point. It fit the crime because the circumstances of the crime were so shocking. And uh, we've got to, you know, the law was there. I didn't make the law. I didn't create this, this issue of community impact statements. I simply used it. I didn't create this concept of night courts. I simply used it.
0: Listen, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. And again, I can't emphasise enough how much I enjoyed reading your book, The Prosecutor. It certainly opened my eyes to parts of the legal system that I didn't really understand. It's a great, as I said, I think in the first podcast, a great immigrant uh, success story. And there are just fascinating details of some really shocking and riveting cases as well. So uh, I would encourage any of our listeners to, to get themselves a copy. If you do want to get in touch with me, by the way, you can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Goldberg Radio. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to Nazir Afzal over these two episodes. It's been a real pleasure for me to talk to you, Nazir. Thank
1: you so much indeed. Thank you, Adrian, and thank you to your listeners. Cheers.